Well, good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? I tell you what, I woke up, it was one of those days where you got sinuses and it, it feels like somebody just hit you in the face with a baseball bat. So I apologize if I look that way as well. Um, but like I said, good morning. It is so good to see y'all this morning. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to get to preach in front of you guys again. Uh, apparently last time wasn't bad enough for y'all to run me off, so here we are. Um, as we just dive into the Word, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 106 today as we just continue in this July's for the Psalm series. And we're just going to learn so much. Psalm 106 is just rich with just God's glory. And there's no way we're going to be able to touch everything, but we're going to try our best. So as you're flipping there, I just want to ask you a simple question. Do you go to the Lord in confession? Do you do it often? Um, what does it look like? Are you even sometimes excited to go? I, I know often I am not. The question is, what does biblical confession look like? What should it look like to have a time of confession that's honoring to God? Now, I believe 106, uh, Psalm 106 is going to answer that question for us today. And, um, we're going to be able to take some principles home and walk this out. Not only be hearers of the word, but be doers. So, give you a little context. Uh, last week, I actually preached in the summit service on Psalm 105. And Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are very similar. They both uh, recount the history of Israel. Um, unfortunately for y'all, they got the happier version. 105 is kind of the more happy version of, you know, the glory of God, and we covered how the psalmist was led into worship and how we should focus in worship. But Psalm 106 kind of focuses more on the failures of Israel, but it is highlighted with God's forgiveness throughout. So it's not all doom and gloom. So let's just dive right into the Word. Um, we're going to look at, we're going to do it kind of a bookend style. So we're going to look at the first seven verses, and then we're going to skip on down and finish out with the last few verses. So starting in verse 1, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This opens up, just like many other psalms, with a general call to worship. And it opens up in a way that is focusing on an aspect of God's character. This is focusing on his steadfast love. Um, you'll see many that focus on the faithfulness of God or the justice of God. This is very common for a psalmist to open up with a call to worship and a focus on a certain aspect of God's character. Let's keep, let's keep trucking. So, let's get out of whack. There we go. Verse 2. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord and declare his praise? I think another great way to rephrase this text to kind of understand it is simply, who is worthy to worship God or even speak of him? Uh, this really helps build up um, the story that the psalmist will tell, starting in verse 8. So he's asking the question, you know, who is even worthy to give God praise, let alone go before him and ask for forgiveness? Let's keep going. We, we're going to look at all these first. We're going to get a good picture and a good understanding, and then we'll see what it means for us today. Verse 3. 
Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness all the time. Now, doing righteousness all the time is pretty impossible. We see verses like Romans 3.10 that talks about how none are righteous, no, not one. So a good way to look at this is those who practice righteousness, those who seek after righteousness, um, because it is, it is very much an impossibility for us humans to do righteousness all the time. But thankfully, today in the new covenant, we can rest upon Christ's righteousness. Let's keep going. Verse 4, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. These are huge verses, so let's, let's just break it apart. So it starts with this idea of remember me, O Lord. He is pleading to God to keep him in mind. Keep him in mind during what? While he is saving Israel. So we see there's a confidence here it's, he's not using the language of remember me if you save Israel, but it's when. When you save Israel, please remember me. Count me in with them. Put me in the same boat as them, Lord. It's this idea, he's, he's got this confidence because as we'll see later in the story, he sees how the Lord has forgiven Israel time and time again. The Lord has delivered Israel time and time again, and he's confident that God will do this for him and the congregation that he is singing to. We see that um, he also is desiring to glorify God. So he's not only wanting to be saved for his own gain, but we see that he's wanting to be saved so that he can bring God glory. He's wanting to be saved so that he can glorify God amongst his brothers and sisters under the old covenant. We see that he's, he's confident. Like I said earlier, he's very confident in the salvation. And this is based, like I said earlier, it's based on the actions of God in the past. Um, let's keep going. Verses 6 and 7. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when we were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. Did they not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So this is the final part of the setup for him retelling the story of Israel. Um, this is the last little section where he is speaking directly to the Lord. This, as you'll see in verse 8, and we'll cover it in a little bit, he changes his focus where he's speaking directly to the Lord now, and then verse 8, it switches from saying, you, God, or you know, speaking to him in a personal dialogue, it switches to, this is what God did. He did this. So we see that the psalmist is admitting to both his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his countrymen. So there's this idea that he is not only coming to the Lord for himself, but he's coming on behalf of the congregation and also on behalf of his ancestors who came before him admitting to the just utter sinfulness of Israel, of how they have forgotten him time and time again. And he gives plenty of examples in the next few verses. He sets up this account of uh, God's redemption. He sets it up to show that um, 
that God is faithful to them even though they are sinners. Um, like I said earlier, verse 8 through 46, this is the bulk of the passage, and we're just not going to have time to read all of that. But the bulk of this packet, passage, it switches to, you know, he delivered, so it'll say, you know, Israel did this, and he delivered them. And as you read through this, and I encourage you to read this passage on your own over the week, there are some really interesting aspects of this. Uh, verses 23 and 30 in particular, go and read those. They give an excellent foreshadowing of Christ. So it, it talks about how Moses stood in the breach for the people of Israel. And I've, I've just always loved that language. And it also talks about the priest Phineas, who is Aaron's grandson, um, interceding on behalf of Israel. And like I say, we don't have time to go into that, but it is just really incredible to see these early pictures of what Christ ultimately did for all of us. Um, it keeps going, and it ends like this, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump back in at verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And so this is really the end of the narrative. After this is when he switches back to a personal dialogue with the Lord. But this, it's interesting to see some of the language in the earlier verses. So he begins in verse 1 with a call on God's steadfast love. And what does he do in ending his narrative? He calls back on that. Um, there in verse 45, it says that he remembered his covenant and he relented according to his steadfast love. So it's, it begins worship with this idea of who God is and then he also ends the narrative of this is why God acted out of his character. Um, and then looking at verses... Uh, 47 and 48, let's finish this out so we get just a good idea of what's going on. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Man, he begins his psalm with praise and he ends his psalm with praise. And there's going to be a little bit we learn from that here in a little bit. But we see that he immediately turns to the personal dialogue after the narrative. And he once again ends with a plea of salvation. And then he ends with a doxology. He ends with a worship of God from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, praise the Lord. Bless his name. Uh, he has, based on what God has done, he has no other choice but to worship God. It's really incredible. So, now that we have a little bit better grasp of the text, I know we flew through that. It probably feels like you were drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, maybe I could have picked a few less verses, but I think it's important that we cover them all. So, we have a better grasp of the text, what it meant, just, just black and white. This is what it's saying. I think we can kind of take some of the principles from this text and apply it to our time. This text was originally written to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, 
Uh, we believe this is probably during the time of exile, based on the language there in verse 47, um, where he's calling to be gathered up. And so this is written to those people, but there's some, there's some principles and there's some lessons that we can learn today and apply in our own personal walks with the Lord. And I think there's four vital truths that we can learn about the subject of confession this morning through this. So just let's dive right in. So looking at the very first point, true confession recognizes the holy character of God. And this is important because these points, you'll notice, they will build upon one another. We cannot have the following points without this one and then so on and so forth. So, like I said, true confession recognizes the holy character of God. Like all other aspects of worship, um, in prayer, in singing, in any in service, in evangelism, it all begins with an upward focus on God himself. If we do not start with this, man, we're going to get it off. If we don't start with God himself, then who are we praying to? Who are we singing to? Who are we telling people about? It must start with an upward focus on God. And we see Psalm 106 does this. It begins in verse 1 with this call to praise. It begins with a recounting of God's character. And you're going to see this throughout Scripture. It always recounts a characteristic of God. It always accounts for who He is. And that's how we must begin in everything, is we must remember who He is. And first and foremost, we must remember His holiness. Because everything can be described with that in front of it. His love, his, it's His holy love. It's His holy justice. He is righteous above all other things. It, we have to have our focus there first. We see that here in verse 1, looking back, we see that the psalmist recognizes the holiness. We see that... Um, we see that the psalmist is giving thanks for his goodness and for his steadfast love, and he has the knowledge of what God has done in the past. He is remembering who he is. It's, but as we focus in, holiness, it's foundational for confession, right? Because what is confession? It's coming before God. It is admitting to our failures, to our sinfulness, it's admitting to this idea that we have fallen short in some form or fashion. So if, if we don't have a good idea of the holiness of God, we don't understand the metric that we're measuring ourselves up to. Because God's holiness serves as the metric. It's His holiness. You see all throughout Scripture, Leviticus, you see it the most. In the book of Leviticus, you see at least six times the Lord says, be holy, for I the Lord am holy. That is the mark for all of us, is to be holy like God is. And I don't know about y'all, but I haven't quite made that mark yet. It is measured, his righteousness, like I said, is the metric. We have to understand this. And understanding God's holiness leads us to two, two things, two outcomes. One, we have 
it leads us to wanting to understand it more, to understand who God is more, and see, man, as you go deeper, you understand how deep the chasm gets. It leads us to just want to understand what it looks like. So I'm I'm up here talking about God's holiness, but what does that look like? Um, What does that mean to say God is holy? And we have to go to the scriptures to seek it out. And we see God's holiness walked all throughout the scripture. We see that he is unable to sin through scripture. We see that he sent his son Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, to live a life that was completely without sin, completely without failure. We see just who he is through the word that he gave us. And we should continue to seek that out. So we should want to attempt to achieve this goal, but we must also know that the goal that we're seeking is unobtainable. I got a big old head, so this came loose, so hopefully it'll stick on my ear. Um, we, we must understand the measure. Not understanding the holiness of God is like, it'd be like if I came up to a runner, say, say you're a Star Trek runner, which I have not and never have been, um, and said, hey, could you, could you run four parsecs? And they say, four is a pretty small number, I bet I could. But they don't understand how big a parsec is, which I didn't until I Googled it. A parsec is 19.2 trillion miles. So I think four might be a little off the table, maybe even one. So he doesn't understand, this runner who is so confident because the number's small isn't using the right measure. They're thinking, oh, maybe four miles, I can do that. But they're, they're using the wrong measurements. And if we don't understand the holiness of God, if we don't understand what the goal is, how are we going to reach it? How are we going to strive after it if we don't know where we're going? And then two out of that, the second point out of that is we're going to come to a realization that the mark is unreachable. Like I said earlier, it is completely unreachable outside of help from God. On our own, there's nothing we can do to run 19 trillion miles. There's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation, to earn our own righteousness. But we have to have help. We have to realize how far removed we are from God's holiness. Which brings me to my next point. True confession recognizes the sinful state of mankind. So, as we grow in deeper knowledge of the holiness of God, this will build. This can't be truly known without knowing the holiness of God. As you understand the holiness of God, you can evaluate yourself and you will realize, man, I am falling more than short. You will recognize the great chasm that is in between you and God. There's nothing you can do to bridge that chasm. You see, the psalmist understood this. Look at verse 2. What's, he, he starts out with worship in verse 1, and then he immediately goes to, you know, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or even declare his praise? Who is even worthy to praise God? That is, that is crazy to think that we're not even worthy to say, man, God is good. 
because we are so sinful. We're so broken. And it, it gives us an insight into who he is. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But just the fact that we're so broken that we can't even come to him and worship without his help, without God's intervention, is it's a good realization because it, it leads you down a few paths that you need to go. It leads you down a path of faith. It leads you down a path of almost desperation for God. Let's keep going. So it also, we see that in verse 6, we see the psalmist not only admits to his sins, but the sins of his congregation and his forefathers, like we had mentioned. And we see two kind of forms, how to, two kind of practical ways we see confession walked out here in this passage. So we see one is personal, and this is one that you're probably more like, you're more aware of, you're more familiar with, and more comfortable with. So this is the idea of being alone with the Lord in your prayer closet or wherever you are, you know, bearing your soul to Him, you know, admitting your sins to Him, begging Him for forgiveness. That's the one that we're, we're more familiar with. But there's also a corporate nature to His confession as well. So we see there's personal, but He's also got a corporate um, form of confession here. And we're likely less familiar with this and a whole lot more uncomfortable with this. And I'm, I'm not talking about coming to the church and just airing out your dirty laundry. But this idea of coming together, this idea of coming together as a congregation and confessing to the Lord together, this idea of confessing, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of you, Lord. Please forgive us. We see that it's this idea of coming before him, and yes, there's this idea of confessing to one another, as we'll later see. Um, you see in the book of James, right, this idea of therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. We see that aspect of simply saying, hey man, I messed up and I need you to pray for me and walk with me in this. So there is that aspect of corporate confession, but there's also this aspect of coming together and saying, hey, we have, you know, as a church, we have, we have fallen short of you, Lord. As a church, we haven't been as obedient as we need to be, which is always going to be the case. But Lord, we, we confess these things. And what you'll see is as you confess together, as you come together in prayer and confession, you'll see that you grow closer to the Lord, but you'll also see that you'll grow closer to your community, to your church family. As we come together, prayer has this incredible power to bind us. We, I've seen it time and time again in just the, the ministry that the Lord has put us in. Um, I'll give you an example of how we did it in Fort Worth. This was a way that our mentors did it, and we really like it. So while I was helping with college, what we'd do is we would meet together, and we would take an extended time of prayer before we got into the Word. And for most of us, it was probably an uncomfortable amount of time in prayer. But we would take time to do intentional guided prayer. So we would walk through, the way we walk through it is we would praise God. So we'd just take time and just praising God for his character. And then we'd take time to thank God for all that he has done. 
And then after that, we would take time of confession. And we, you know, kind of popcorn, you know, the, you ever heard of the popcorn, just kind of go when you feel led. Obviously, confession, people were a little more quiet. Um, but we would take that time, and sometimes it was this personal, you know, I have, you know, Lord, please forgive me, because I have, I've just not been faithful to get up and read your word. But there's also been times in that group where we say, Lord, we, we have not been sharing your word with others as a group, or we have not been dedicated to discipleship. And we've noticed that as we pray those things and as we confess to the Lord in those things, we would find ourselves all spurred on to do better in obedience. We'd find ourselves all spurred to encourage one another to follow that, to be obedient in evangelism, in discipleship, in these things. We grew together, and we also got to know each other. It was more than, you know, hey, have a good week, but it was, hey, how are you doing? In a very intentional way. So we see this idea that admitting as a corporate body our failures to the Lord, we grow together. Um, we, We truly seek after Him. This, this knowledge of our own sinfulness, both personal and corporate, is necessary as well for our heart to be in a position to call upon God for help. If we don't understand that our God is holy and if we don't understand that we are not, we're not going to call on God for his help. Which brings me to my third point. True confession recognizes that only God can deliver us from our sins This is a result of knowing who he is and who we are in relation to him. Without God's goodness and mercy, we stand utterly condemned. And understanding this, understanding that we have no leg to stand on on our own, it's going to bring us to him, like I said earlier, in a desperate way. Lord, you are the only way I have to cling to you. In the same way that... Um, Jacob clung to the Lord in the book of Genesis, right? I'm not going to let go, Lord, until you bless me. He's clinging to him. That's how we must be. You see this, and let's look back at Psalm. Let's stay tied to this text. Look at verse 47. It's way down here. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glorify in your praise. He is just begging the Lord, please forgive us. After walking through everything Israel has done, every failure, and seeing how the Lord has picked them up, delivered them from it, and they continue to turn back to it. We see that he's confident, once again, he is confident in God's salvation because he has seen it. How many times did the people of Israel turn from God right after he saved them. I remember when I, when I first became a believer and I was reading through the book of Exodus, it's like, man, these are some boneheaded people. God just split the ocean for them. And now ten minute, it feels like 10 minutes later they're saying, oh, Moses, why did you bring us out of this desert to kill us? You know, I used to think, man, how boneheaded are they? And then you know, after being a believer for a few years, I realized, oh, I'm that boneheaded too. So... We see this in the account that the psalmist gives as well. We see multiple times. We see there uh, in verse 19, we see the people turn to the golden calf. 
uh, to worship him. We see there in verse 28, they're turning to Baal. We see that they continue to turn away from God, even though he saves them continually, he still remembers his covenant with them out of his steadfast love. Look at verse 43 with me. Let's read back over it. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low for their iniquity. I mean, look at that. He brought them out of it, and they were still rebellious. It's mind-blowing that we would do this, that we would spit in God's face. He would continue to save us, and we'd just do it again. It, It goes to show you just how far removed from righteousness we really are and how much help we really need. Let's keep going. This concept, it just, of God being the only way of salvation. They turned to other gods and it did not work for them. It turned them to ruin. We see this all throughout. You know, the idea of the, you know, I'm the way, the truth, right right up there. I'm the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Look here in Acts. This is one of the most clear passages on it. Acts 4.11 uh, and 12. And you don't have to flip there, I'll just read it. And then Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which is, has become the cornerstones. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. It is only God. It is only our Savior Jesus. We have to cling to him because of our depravity and his goodness. We have to cling to him because it's the only way. But understanding what he has done for us and understanding that chasm, man, when you truly understand the gospel, when you truly understand the fact that Jesus was sent by God the Father, he lived the life that we couldn't, And then he died the horrific death that should have been us. It should have been us hanging there. And when he was buried and he rose again three days later to show his power over sin and death, to be the first fruit of the resurrection so that we may raise with him, to understand the the immense mercy in that, when you truly understand how holy God was, He would have been completely just and good to destroy us for our sinfulness, to be in rebellion. But he still had mercy on us. He still sent his son. He still just continues to rescue us. We have to just marvel at who God is. And that brings me to my last point. True confession will always end in worship. It will always end in worship. When you come to the God that you're not even worthy to praise and you say, Lord, I have failed you in this way. I have sinned against you. I have been in rebellion against you. Please have mercy on me. And you experience that mercy, you have no other option but to praise him. You have no other option but to say, man, it doesn't make any sense, God. You don't make any sense to to save such a wretch like me. We have to lead, 
leave everything on the table. Leave it all for him. Set, set it all down in front of him. It's, it's a burden that only he can take. I say, we, we just have no choice but to praise him. And we see here in the psalm, what does he do? How does he end it? He ends it with praise. Bless the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all people say amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for who he is, for his character, for his goodness, his faithfulness, his justice. He is fully holy. And it is just incredible. You know, this passage in First John that talks about if we if we you know beg for forgiveness that he is he is faithful and just to forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us. And he's only just through the actions of Christ. It would have been just to eliminate us. But through the actions of Christ, through the mercy afforded to us by Christ paying our debt, he is just in saving. But only if we place our faith in what Christ has done for us and who he is. Make him not only your friend, but your king. Surrender to him. He's the only way. He is the only one who has victory over death. You're not going to find it in a golden calf. You're not going to find it in Baal. You're not going to find it in seeking your own truth. You're not going to find it in anything in this world. Money, you know, a good job, security. None of that has victory over death. You could be the most secure, most rich person in the world, but you're going to face death. You're going to face judgment without Christ. So, after walking through all that, what do we do with it? How do, we, how do we become doers of God's word? How do we implement these ideas of confession? I want to try to give you some practical challenges this week. Um, one, I, just, I want you to take time this week in your prayer and your personal time of the Lord and just take an extended time just to dwell on the holiness of God. Dive in his word and just, just walk through who he is. Start with God first. Always start with God first in your reading, in your purpose, in everything. Dwell on his holiness. See it all throughout scripture. I guarantee you, no matter where you're reading in scripture, you will see God's holiness. You will see God's character shine through. So just take time to dwell on that. Don't go to the scripture to what can I gain from this? And you can gain a lot. But go to the scripture to simply know God. And I know if you ever hear me preach, you'll probably think I'm beating a dead horse because I always go to this well. But it's so important. It's so foundational. We have to know our God to be in relationship with him. If I didn't know my wife, I wouldn't be a very good husband. And the same principle applies. So dwell on his holiness. And then take time after that to examine yourself. And examine, man, where have I fallen short of that? Where have I fallen short of that metric? And go before God and beg him for his forgiveness. And beg him for his forgiveness with a confidence 
that he will forgive you. Because he will. He is forgiving. He is just and faithful to forgive. If you don't know the Lord, I just want you to do a very similar thing. And I just want you to think on your own righteousness. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you have not placed your faith in him, I want you to dwell on your own righteousness. Is it enough? Is it enough to meet the metric? I'm going to tell you, you don't have to, you don't have to dwell long to realize it's not. Because the metric is perfection. And I could bet a lot of money that none of us here are perfect. And I would win that bet. I don't want you to leave today thinking that you can make it on your own. Thinking that you can meet this mandate of perfection. Because you can't. You have to place your faith in Christ. Place your faith in what Christ has done. Place your faith in Him placing your sins on Himself on the cross and dying. The wrath of God the Father was poured out onto the Son so that we may have forgiveness. He became a curse for us. Just dwell on who He is. And I just beg you, make Him the King of your life today. Rest that He will forgive you. It doesn't matter what you did. Paul killed Christians. It was his hobby. More a job, I guess. But he killed Christians and God forgave him and decided to use him to write most of the New Testament. So what you did isn't going to outweigh God's mercy and goodness. What Israel did in the story never outweighed the goodness and the forgiveness of our God. So call upon him. And then lastly, this is maybe something that could be more measured. But this week, I really encourage you to meet with a group of believers. Maybe that's your, your normal Sunday school class since you know, we're having family Sunday school. Meet with them, not on Sunday, but you know, throughout the week. Have dinner. Maybe it's just a group of three or four of you. But walk through prayer together and walk through confession together. Practice this. Try the method that we use. You know, have pointed prayer time. But just take time to come together and confess together. Pray together. And you will see that you will grow together. You will charge one another on to good works and worship of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us uh, this chance to dive into your word. Lord, we, we just praise you for who you are for your holiness and your goodness to uh, be mindful of a speck of dust like me, like us. Lord, we have fallen short in so many ways. Please forgive us. We are confident in your forgiveness. We are confident in your character. And Lord, please um, just, just make a mighty work in this church. Lord, work through our confession. Work through our faith in you in realizing that it's only you. It's only you that can save. It's only you that can lead us um, in a way that is glorifying to you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. See your mighty name we pray. Amen.